Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez. Welcome to the Outcomes Rockets. And so today I have a very outstanding guest. His name is Rhett Stover. Rhett is the regional CEO at Tandem Hospital Partners. Rhett joined Tandem in April of 2017 as regional CEO with responsibilities for multi-market operations, partner development, strategy alignment, revenue enhancement, and key market growth. He's got a lot on his plate, but he knows how to do it well. And prior to Tandem, Mr. Stover served in a variety of leadership roles for Mercy Health out of Chesterfield, Missouri. Most recently as Chief Administrative Officer for Mercy Oklahoma City and President and CEO of Oklahoma State University Medical Center. Rhett is an outstanding individual and I wanted to open up the mic for him to finish up that intro, but just wanted to welcome you to the podcast, Rhett. Saul, thank you. I appreciate that introduction. It's a pleasure to be with you and looking forward to spending some time together in great discussion and tell your your viewers out there, it's a pleasure to to be with them as well. You know, as far as the introduction, the only thing I'd add is uh, I'm a huge Cubs fan. And so for you you Chicagoland, yeah, for you Chicagoland viewers, there's some folks in Oklahoma that cheer for the Cubbies too. And And I love pugs, and so we nice. uh, we're dog lovers, and I think uh, pugs are always bringing smiles to people's faces, <laughs> and, uh, and so we love the breed and and enjoy it. So I just wanted to add a little bit of personal touch to some of the professional courtesies that you extended. So thank you for that. No, I love I love that. Right, you do that really well, man. You're a professional, but at the same time, you always know how to make it personal. Something I could learn from you. So you know, one of the things that I I always love asking the guests is. Why medical? Like, why did you decide to get into the medical sector? Yeah, so I appreciate the question. I I love to ask others the same thing. And what I found is that because of the nature and the business of healthcare, oftentimes it's an experience. You know, life is full of experiences, and oftentimes it's an experience with the healthcare system, or maybe as a result of uh, an experience that a loved one's had that draws people to the industry. And and I'm really no different in that regard. My dad's an optometrist. His dad was a general surgeon. And my grandmother, she started the patient relations department at Hillcrest Healthcare System in Tulsa back in the, um, I guess, the mid to late 70s. And as I started to kind of grow up and begin to understand that people had to work for a living mm-hmm. <laughs> and took notes on what it is that my family did, they were always in the healthcare field. And so I didn't really see myself doing anything else but that. So it's just been a natural and kind of organic progression for me and a you know, built-in affinity that I've had for the industry and for the interactions and the personal touches uh, and the healing, the ways that we can contribute to that, whether you're a clinician, whether you're a physician or an administrative resource staff level, it takes a tremendous amount of collaboration to create an environment that allows optimal healing. And those have always been components that have been important to me and I've really drawn inspiration from and, and fulfillment. So it's really just because of uh, you know how I was raised that pointed me towards healthcare as a career field. That's great, right? And it sounds like, was it your mother or your grandmother that started a patient relations? I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, my grandmother. Yeah, grandma. my grandmother. Yeah. 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 See, no, right. I appreciate you uh, sharing that. And it sounds like with your grandma being starting the patient relations uh, department, 
you've carried over that seed of keeping the patient at the center through your career and and your dad being the optometrist, you kind of do have an eye for finding good opportunities and sort of, I think that's kind of what took you over to your new role at Tandem and uh, looking forward to diving into that a little bit further in an interview. But, you know, I wanted to ask you, what's a hot topic that you feel should be on every medical leader's agenda as you've seen through the years and kind of now where we're at now? I think you probably get this one a lot and I think it gets a tremendous amount of airplay and, and we struggle as leaders, clinical and administrative and otherwise, to really adopt meaningful change. But we got to figure out the cost equation. We've got to figure out how to, how to rein in a more disciplined approach to the delivery of medicine that doesn't equate to annual rising costs that are documented and, and noted and widely agreed upon as being unsustainable. So it's really this idea that we've got to be better stewards of the resources that we have while at the same time offering a healing and clinical experience that creates much more value for our, our patients and that is really fenced with quality. So if quality is kind of the territorial marker around everything that we're doing. We've got to you know, be able to intersect clinical and economic value within that environment that doesn't happen by accident or doesn't happen just on occasion. We've got to figure out as a, as a system how to drive that in a you know, more reliable and dependable manner. Yeah, without a doubt, bringing down the cost is a huge topic that a lot of people like to avoid. And it's interesting that you guys at, at Tandem, right, are, are taking this head on. Can you give an example to the listeners of what you guys are doing to address the cost issue? Absolutely. So we've had the opportunity really over the last uh, year and a half or so to investigate certain markets and geographies across uh, the country where we believe that a a more micro-oriented hospital or neighborhood hospital product could be implemented into a market or ingratiated into a market and inserted clinically so that the service to patients in that community is strengthened through greater access and the costs that are shouldered largely by employers, payers, and also consumers, increasingly you know, consumers shouldering more financial responsibility, but at a cost and price point that helps us get at this idea of what CMS really, frankly, has been trying to beat on and promote for a number of years, and that's triple aim. Mm -hmm. So how do we get ourselves organized and designed in such a way that we're offering better care and better outcomes, patients get a better experience, and we're able to do all of that at a better price. And to the extent that we can design a model that helps meet those objectives, I think the ripple effects will be important. And that's where rich collaboration can take place. But we think we're on to something as it relates to addressing those features. And we're optimistic. Uh, we're looking forward to demonstrating results in the markets that uh, we're currently in over the course of the next 12 to 18 months and seeing what kind of story develops, what, what kind of quality story develops, what kind of cost story develops, and then ultimately, how does it how does our model help elevate the total health of the communities that we're serving? Yeah, that's really interesting. And as we dive into this next question here, I kind of want to keep with the theme of cost and, and these micro hospitals. But can you give the listeners an example of how Tandem has, you know, what specifically can be done with a micro hospital to bring down the cost or increase profitability, improve outcomes? What exactly are you guys doing to help do that? So if you think about uh, a micro hospital or neighborhood hospital environment, they're typically anywhere from 
17, 18,000 square feet on the, I don't want to say the low end, but kind of the introductory end. And there are hospitals that are even 100,000 you know, square feet in size that call themselves uh, micro hospital environments. And, and that's interesting <laughs> because yeah. there's, a, there's a big difference in it's borderline, right? In, in those, yeah. <laughs> but for us, we're probably in that 18 to 20,000 square feet range. The fixed costs inherent in an environment in a micro format are, they pale in comparison to what you would experience in a larger general acute care setting that is maybe 200, 250, up to you name the number of beds. And as you spread those clinical resources and other fixed costs across an environment that is that intense, the only way you have the ability to cover that is, is through reimbursement. And so the reimbursement that you seek it requires more than what we would necessarily need to have in a micro environment because we can make the dollar stretch farther. So that would be an example of how the favorable fixed cost structure that we have helps us create a, uh, a reimbursement environment that is not as intense. It doesn't require as intense of a payment as uh, other systems might need. And so that'd be one example of savings opportunity. The others are just in terms of more appropriate care settings. You don't want to have people in emergency conditions who may have a level three or level four visit. They may or may not need to be automatically admitted into a patient or admitted into inpatient status. You may be able to keep those in observation status or manage their uh, the immediacy of their needs, their clinical needs and characteristics in an environment that, again, is reduced costs from the hospital. And employers are, and payers are, you know, they're increasingly sensitive to how the inpatient encounters for their members are, are managed and, and the risk that's associated in the form of expense and cost for those encounters. And so the industry has done a great job in the last five, six years at increasingly managing care in and out of uh, or in an, in an outpatient capacity, but there are sometimes that's not always met with cost savings. You know, if you have right. hospital outpatient departments that are behaving as outpatient delivery mechanisms and vehicles for for care, that that's great. But sometimes that doesn't translate to lower costs. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so the fixed costs really gives them more controls and and also uh, more appropriate care settings, giving people the level of care that they need, not anything more or anything less. Yeah. One of the things that we really try to focus on is right care, right time, right place, right price. Love it. So it's those good philosophy. Those four verticals. Yeah. We get into those four verticals and you know, we're not perfect, but uh, we envision a world where the more that happens, the better it is for everyone. So that's where we're really focused. Man, that is great, Rhett. And from what I hear, you guys just cut the ribbon on a, on a new uh, hospital here in the Midwest, right? We did. We have a, a great partner in the Indianapolis market, uh, St. Vincent Health, and they have an incredible mission and just do a phenomenal job in the market seeking to serve the healthcare needs of many communities in Indianapolis and Indianapolis Metro. And, and so this week, in fact, we had the opportunity to open uh, our first hospital with St. Vincent. It's a neighborhood hospital that carries uh, their brand and we're integrated uh, deeply within their clinical environment with their medical group. And uh, we are just super excited about what opportunities and what learnings we're going to have from this and can't wait to see how patients feel about it. And uh, just a real exciting time now for us. Man, that's really great, Red. And so congratulations to Tandem. Congratulations to the, the folks over at St. V's for having a vision of how can we benefit 
the patient more? What can we do to really improve outcomes and lower the cost of, of our operations? So I just, that's awesome that you guys partnered. It's great that you've cut the ribbon and, and uh, now the, the people of Indianapolis have another option to be able to get taken care of. Yes, sir. Yeah, the folks at St. V, again, they uh, couldn't be better leaders and clinicians and just have an incredible heart and a spirit of service. And we're just, we're flattered and humbled. And uh, we think that it's going to be the beginning of something uh, really important and, and impressive in that market. That's great, Red. And so one of the things that I find uh, from just talking to people and even from personal experience is we learn more as leaders from mistakes or setbacks that we've made versus the good things. So I want to take it to this part of the interview where I ask, what is it that you've had maybe a setback that you'd like to share that made you an even better leader that helped you deliver better care? That's a great question. So we talk amongst our leadership team and then encourage similar dialogue around the departments that they lead. And it's a simple suggestion that if you're not failing, you're not living. (laughs) And it's the idea that failing is a part of life. And the key to it is let's learn, let's create safe havens for failure. People think about failure and you know it becomes something that is always viewed in a negative, not always, but largely viewed in a negative context. And we're really trying to celebrate failure as being a learning opportunity and something that illuminates an ingredient that helps us propel our organization to a place that we may not have been able to go to or that we may have not even recognized without that failure. So it's really about embracing an environment that allows people to fail. And hopefully, you know, the quicker we fail, the quicker we can move on to the learnings that we're after. So it's fail fast and learn. A specific example that we had recently, we were in the process of building our neighborhood hospital, our first neighborhood hospital. We had um, went through the planning and design phases and we had entered into the construction phase of uh, the project and realized that a set of rooms on one side of the hospital were 18 inches. The wall was 18 inches further in from the hallway than it should have been. So it was really a, a design flaw. Mm. But it had crossed through, I don't know, five or six different hands and five or six different desks and approvals had to be you know, received on each one of those. And, and I think the learning was is that as collaborative partners, it is important that we always assume the best intentions. And that doesn't mean that everything is always perfect. And so while we were going through that process, I think the momentum carried itself in such a way where once you have an approval then you have another approval, then the review process gets a little bit more relaxed <laughs> because you've got people under you that have right. vetted that out. And so it's a real simple one, but it's very recent in memory. And it wasn't cheap. You know, we had to go back and you know, redo the design. And there was some costs associated with that. There were some costs associated with the construction and it delayed initially, it delayed for a short period of time, the timeline that we were on. But it was a learning moment for us because, you know, even in the busiest, the little things are just so incredibly important. And in the busyness of our days, it, you can get yourself into a, a moment or two where the smallest error in margin can create something that uh, distracts you. That's such a great uh, example, right? I appreciate you sharing that. And it's so amazing that these little things build to these big things. One of my favorite books of all time is called The Compound Effect. I don't know if you've had a chance to read that one. No, I haven't. Put it on the list. It's so good. It really kind of encapsulates this idea of, you know, it's the little things. He, Darren Hardy is the guy's name. And he talks about mosquitoes don't bite or no elephants don't bite. Mosquitoes do. That's what he says. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and these, these little things that happen, right? They give you little bites and then it becomes an elephant. 
And sort of this this idea that you just shared, Red, of these details that went unnoticed and eventually became something bigger. But then the the idea that I kind of want to touch on here and get your your perspective on for the listeners is you mentioned a sanctuary for failure or, or an area for failure. How do you create that environment? I feel like that's something that we all work on and try to get better at. But if you had to boil it down to one or two things, how do you create that and failure-friendly environment? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, first of all, you got to prove it. And so I think those that we serve and those that we lead, when they see across our society and across uh, maybe in their own previous experiences, when they see instances of kind of instant retribution and, you know, this idea that people are going to be generalized or discriminated or labeled quickly for an error or for a mistake that they may make, it really creates sensitivity and anxiety. And so as leaders, mm-hmm. when we start to talk about that, it's always, not always, but it, it's oftentimes, it can be met with skepticism, right? Right. And so we have to prove it as an organization. We have to first communicate it and inspire it. So there's a, there's a narrative that you have to speak and deliver to help folks authentically understand that the environment that we're creating as it relates to being accepting of failure without judgment, without persecution, without retribution is important. It's a critical importance to our organization. And as you commit to that narrative and stay steady with it and constant with it, then you get the opportunity to prove it. And so when those moments happen, it's met with an embrace. It's met with a process that is designed to encourage their heart so that they believe and understand and are fully convicted in the idea that what they've done is something good and what they have helped to do is something good that will improve the organization. Now, that doesn't dismiss negligence or any gross outliers, things of that nature. But as an organization and as a community in relationship with partners across you know, really the country, these safe havens, these sanctuaries, as you described them, I think they're an important differentiator for us, uh, particularly with this small but evolving niche of the industry and segment of the industry. I appreciate you diving into that. Consistently communicate and then prove it by showing that you're not just talking the talk, but you're walking the walk and then putting a process around it. That's great. And so, you know, we dove into one of the setbacks that you've had, but let's take the other side of that coin and walk us through your most recent or even proudest, doesn't have to be recent, medical leadership experience that you've had to date? It's a uh, recent's good. And this probably because it's recent, it's the freshest. And uh, it was just a great experience. But the experience I had with leaders at uh, Oklahoma State University Medical Center and Oklahoma State University College of Health Sciences, the hospital in Tulsa is a safety net hospital for the community. And it's a beacon for the underinsured and uninsured to go and receive care. It had been mismanaged, neglected, and almost treated as a castaway for a number of years. And when I was with Mercy, we had the opportunity to come in and provide some support to the organization, leadership support. And and it was just an incredible moment. Uh, We rallied the coworkers of the institution around a a shared vision that was um, more about the future of medicine that they would deliver in the community and how critical that their placement and their role in that was to uh, the services and um, the care available to the most vulnerable. And then we had to stabilize the organization from a financial perspective. And so we executed a financial turnaround plan that was um, very significant. And we were 
fortunate to be very successful in that regard. And there was a tremendous amount of not only discovery, but also fulfillment and the outcomes that were delivered. So we were able to increase patient satisfaction scores and improve our quality scores, improve our NOI. And as a result of that, elevate the clinical credibility and the esteem of the institution within the community. And that work continues today, doesn't continue. uh, It continues with a different Catholic healthcare sponsor, but we'll always look back fondly on that experience and, and with great, great, great gratitude about the people that I had the opportunity to work with and their strengths and their talents and together what we created will always be something really special. That's great. Yeah. You know, to be able to to dive in and turn a ship like that around is no small task. So kudos to you, Rhett, and your team there for being able to do that uh, in, in an underserved community. So that's a really amazing thing that you guys did. Yeah, it's a, a big effort and you never know how when you approach those types of tasks, you never really know how they're going to turn out, you hope. But it was... Uh, something that everybody was committed to. And I think a process from the standpoint of planning, from the standpoint of morale and chemistry, you know, we just decided that we were going to do our best to lead with relationship and that we were going to be transparent and authentic in all of our communications and that we weren't going to settle. And so it was uh, getting everybody rallied around that. And as we were able to do that, everything else you know, we felt like whatever came at us, we could conquer if, as long as we knew that the people that were serving and that we were serving were committed and convicted to the destination that we'd outlined. And, and so it was, uh, it was a phenomenal journey. That's awesome. And, and you know, you, you get what you tolerate, right? And, and so in, in healthcare, we get what we tolerate. And in healthcare leadership, we get what we tolerate. And so it sounds like you guys set some, some high standards, you rallied the troops, and you wouldn't tolerate anything less than amazing. And you guys were able to, through some time and hard work and sweat and <laughs> maybe some tears. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> all the above, no doubt. <laughs> To turn it around. That's awesome. That is so awesome. And so what would you say right now is an exciting project or focus you guys are working on? Uh, really, it's just getting these first network of neighborhood hospitals um, up and running. And so that's got um, our full attention, but we want to make sure that we're doing it the right way. And we feel like there's not a lot of opportunity in healthcare right now where you get a blank canvas. And mm-hmm. this is in space within the industry that because of its newness and freshness and because of the migration and openness that the industry has now to new models, we feel like you know, we've got a special opportunity and we don't, it's not lost on us. We, we don't take a minute of it for granted and we're just very focused on being great partners, serving our people well. And then as we do that, have you know, those ingredients be what helps us do everything that we can right in the eyes of patients that we serve. So how can people learn more about Tandem and the micro hospital environment and how these different models can help them? Do you guys have a website or any resources to learn? Yeah, we've got a website. It's tandemhospitalpartners.com. People uh, are free to visit the website and learn more. Uh, There's been over the last couple of years, two to three years in particular, there's been a lot of research done and a lot of articles that have been written about the emergence of the micro hospital, neighborhood hospital environment. And uh, there are a few variations. So as the model itself is kind of situating in our industry, one is not always the next. So there's a couple of variations out there, but increasingly there's more documentation, more evidence, more research and information available 
on the industry. Cool. So Outcomes Rocket listeners, if you want to learn a little bit more about what the folks at Tandem are doing, I'll include the website that Mr. Stover just shared, tandemhospitalpartners.com. So don't worry about writing it down. If you're driving, (laughs) just when you get to where you're going or if you go out for a run, just go go to the show notes at outcomesrocket.com slash ret. That's R-H-E-T-T. And you'll be able to find all the show notes, including all the different resources that we've mentioned, as well as this uh, website. So, Brett, let's pretend you and I are building a medical leadership course on what it takes to be successful in medicine today. It's the 101 course or the ABCs of Rhett Stover. And I'd like to write out the syllabus with you and just we're going to get some brief answers to these next four questions. It's a lightning round. Okay. Great. Let's, yeah, let's do it. This sounds dangerous, but let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I love it. And so what is the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? So I, I probably go back to the first part of our conversation when we talked about intersecting, you know, science and, and medicine and, and the art of medicine. And so for me, it's about ensuring from step one that the environment of quality that we create allows the intersection of science and the art of medicine to intersect in a way that's very powerful. And that is not easy to accommodate, but at the end of the day, I think it's a personal deep belief that I have that we need to allow our physicians and clinicians the autonomy that they need to facilitate healing experiences. But we've got to do that through the use of data and science, and that's got to be a critical component that guides decision-making. So a few tidbits there that I would suggest in terms of improving outcomes sustainably. What is the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? What I found, Saul, is in the moments that have meant the most to me, the counterbalance to that is ego and agenda. And I think they're the evil of our industry. I think when people, and other industries for that matter, but when people get too committed to themselves or have too inflated a view of themselves or their agenda, that's an evil that acts as nothing but an obstacle. And so we subscribe to the idea that it's not important to concern yourself with feelings of needing to be the smartest person in the room or the best person, we need to focus our energies and talents on being the best teammates in the room to each other. And I just believe that it's through collaborative experiences and collaborative opportunities that the best thinking and the best results and the best solutions come forward. A great message. How do you stay relevant as an organization despite constant change? Well, yeah. So, I mean, our industry, if you think about the amount of change happening across the industry, you've got the regionalization of healthcare that's occurring. Bigger systems are getting bigger. Payers are getting bigger. And there's just a tremendous amount of M&A activity. And so there's those behemoths. Then there's this kind of middle market, middle ground contingency of players. And for them to survive, it's a different playbook. And at the end of the day, again, I'm beating it to death, but I, I go back to collaboration. And I think the extent to which, with which you can collaborate with those in your community, those across state lines, those in different niches of the industry, that level of collaboration will help deliver a more thoughtful design and a more sustainable delivery that gets us pointed towards high performance, high touch, and high reliable delivery of care. And I, I just don't think that that can happen routinely and consistently without an unprecedented level of collaboration. And that means that you have to leave your ego and agenda behind. What is one area of focus that should drive all else in the company? For us, again, it's our patients and and our people. And everything that we do, whether it be our patients, our people, our partners, everything we do is in service of others. And on our best days, we do it with integrity 
Uh, it's always how we lead, but it's also important to have an inventive spirit. So we lead with integrity and inventive spirit. We want to be a loving and collaborative family. We want our experiences with others to demonstrate that. We want them to experience that. And we express these types of values daily in all of our interactions. And to the extent we get that right, it is much easier for a lot of other things to fall into place. And what book would you recommend, Rhett, for the listeners to uh, check out? Oh, man. So just one. I don't know. Uh, I, one of my all-time favorites is Last Lecture by Randy Posh. He had pancreatic cancer and passed away. He was an instructor at Carnegie Mellon, and it was an incredible read, very quick read. But his principle and his story in the book is really about don't chase your dreams. Live your life the right way and let your dreams come to you. Don't get so caught up in the chase and lose focus on what really matters. Live your life the right way and your dreams will come to you. And you may not even know what those dreams are until they're up close and, and, and you're going through the realization process. And I took a lot away from that book and I'm happy to always recommend it to others. But the last book I read is The Carpenter by John Gordon. And it's a great book about relationships and the importance of leading from relationship and setting a foundation and a framework around really um, specific behaviors that can transform relationships. And that could be professionally, personally, you name it. It has broad application and I uh, highly recommend it to your listeners. I think they would enjoy it. Thank you, Rhett. And so there you have it, Outcomes Rocket listeners. Create an environment of quality. It's the science and the art. Get rid of that ego, that agenda. Focus more on collaboration, community, niches, your country, and be focused on your patients, your people, and your partners. We're in the service business. And finally, read The Carpenter and The Last Lecture. Uh, and that last lecture, Randy also has a YouTube video. Have you seen that, Rhett? The I YouTube have. video? Yeah, sure. It's, have. It's, it's incredible. But it's chilling. Absolutely. It's chilling. Yeah. It, and it so, just, go ahead. Sorry. What were I was going to say, I just got goosebumps. I mean, it just gives you, it's just powerful that way. It really does. And so, for the listeners, if you want a piece of inspiration, we'll go ahead and put these links into the show notes. We'll include that video as well for the last lecture. I saw the video and I just, I had to read the book. It really is one of those solid books, solid reads that is really meaningful. So, Rhett, I really want to just thank you for being on the show. And so before we conclude, just want to ask you to share one closing thought and the best place that the listeners could get a hold of you. So, you know, I'm an optimistic at heart. I'm an optimistic guy and, and, and have probably my glass three-fourths full most of the time. Nice. Um, but I think it's important as, just as, as a society and as individuals, you know, we maintain that childlike wonder. We maintain a view of the world that is not Pollyannic, but that is always leaning towards how to improve, how to get better, and you know how to be creative with the solutions that we that we design. And and I don't believe that happens without deeply concerning ourselves with serving and helping others. It's important to be loyal and and certainly to to seek and to find the best in everybody. I think when we do that, it allows us to be positive forces in the lives of those that we touch. And no matter what, you can't get there alone. The journey is much better as a family and as a team. And, and in my view, the results are also better. I was going to just briefly mention if your Absolutely. listeners would like to uh, get in touch with me, I'm on LinkedIn at uh, LinkedIn slash Rhett Stover and uh, on Twitter at Rhett Stover. I'm not on Twitter a lot, but uh, I do read a lot of news on Twitter. Awesome. Well, Rhett, we really appreciate you. You're a very inspiring leader. And uh, I know that, you know, the things we talked about today will definitely inspire the folks that are listening and uh, really want to just say thanks so much for being on the show. No, it's been, a, it's been a pleasure, Saul, and uh, to your listeners out there, appreciate your all's time as well. Um, 
you know, wish everybody the best in all of their endeavors. And again, it's uh, been a pleasure to have some time with you. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more.